friends. I'm Tanya Luna, psychology researcher and educator. And I'm Brian Luna. I've eaten dog food on four occasions and only one was an accident. And you're listening to Talk, Talk Psych, Psych to, to me. me, a show where we take research out of the lab and into the street. Let's get into it. We are back this week, and we have not just me talking psych to you today, not just Brian, but also our spectacular guest, Irshad Manji, who also goes by Shaq. Shaq. We're going to find out why shortly. Irshad is one of those humans who's so impressive that she has a Wikipedia page. Mm. And by way of introduction, here are some things Wikipedia says about her. (laughs) Um, Once she chimes in, she could let us know if it's all false. (laughs) So she is an educator, writer, documentarian, founder of the Moral Courage Project, which we'll learn more about, Mm -hmm. has multiple honorary doctorates, and she's the author of three books, The Trouble with Islam Today, Allah, Liberty, and Love, both of which have been banned in several countries, hashtag goals. And her latest book, Don't Label Me, is about the dangers of labeling, shaming, the importance of moral courage, and that's what we'll get into today. I started the show by giving you a bunch of labels, which is kind of antithetical to To your entire book. So I'm going to stop labeling you. What are some labels that you would like to list to introduce yourself to our listeners? So I've written this book, as you've just pointed out, called Don't Label Me. The (laughs) subtitle is also important. It's How to Do Diversity Without Inflaming the Culture Wars. And that is by way of saying that the one label that I think is accurate for any sentient being. And Brian, I'm looking at you, friend. (laughs) The label that captures all of us is, drum roll, please. Plural. Plural. And what I mean by that is each of us, no matter who we are, is always so much more than meets the eye. We are all multifaceted. And if we really care about diversity, we're not going to clump one another into groups. Sure, you can start that way, but we're not going to leave it at that. Hmm. We're then going to respect and recognize the individuality that each and every person has, even when they are a member of the group. And let me be clear, I am not referring to individualism. Hmm. Individualism states that I'm out for myself and I don't care if my society benefits. That's not individuality. Mm. Individuality means I am myself, my unique self. And when I express my uniqueness, I do so in a way that enriches my society. Mm. So it's a beautiful balance between the individual and the community. That's beautiful. So that we could get Brian into this conversation as well. (laughs) You've just been upgraded to sentient and then to plural. Mm -hmm. What comes to mind when you hear that for yourself? We joked around before we started recording that there are many layers, you know, to Brian, (laughs) whatever, to all of us. I believe you were described by yourself as an onion. I do. I I do. (laughs) And I hate onions. It's something I learned to discover. When I left Texas, I was a thing. Mm. I was a football player. I was a jock. I was a kind of closed-minded Texan, hard-headed, whatever. It took a lot of time and a lot of stress to like crack all that. And not only for myself, but to see others exactly how (laughs) Shaq Shaq is describing. You mean giggle uh, now. You're making me giggle. I've never said that out loud and not (laughs) referred to Shaq, you know, on TV. I I just feel like it's a hell of a journey. And I love discovering, especially people I disagree with Mm. um, right now. It's almost like what you're bringing up, both of you, is when you allow yourself to notice that richness and complexity of who you are, 
it allows you to appreciate the richness and complexity of the individuals around you. Mm-hmm. Which brings me to my next question. Why do you go by Shaq? Uh, you see, I can't believe we didn't open with that. Tanya, I'm telling you, you could not have scripted this more nicely. <laughs> this, totally. You guys have just given me exactly the right segue. So here's my point about engaging your so-called other in order to really appreciate who they are and therefore where they're coming from. So years and years ago, when I was still living in Canada. Label alert. Label. Did, I said I was just living in Canada. Did I call myself <laughs> Canadian? I didn't hear it. No, sorry. I didn't hear it. No, exactly. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, this is your host, Tanya Luna, jumping to assumptions. So true. AKA Label Maker 5000. I was there. You go. It was an alert of a label I (laughs) placed on you in my mind. See? Bingo. Okay. Podcast is over. You know, we're, I've made my point. Okay. So I was living in Canada at the time. And by the way, I am Canadian, but I'm so much more than that as well. <laughs> and I was hosting a TV show called, again, drumroll, please. Queer television. Now, before you say label, understand <laughs> that I defined queer as anybody who is a misfit. No matter how you are an ill fit with society, to my mind, you wear the badge of honor known as queer. The way I produced this show is when we got all the hate mail that we did, because really, I mean, it you know started off being a show for and about LGBTQ people. Mm-hmm. But because I decided that you know queer meant so much more than just LGBT, I decided to air a lot of the hate mail that we got, both emails as well as voicemails. And one of those voicemails was from a guy who sounded like he had an Italian accent. Mm-hmm. And he wanted me to kill myself by jumping off of what is known in Toronto, Canada, as the Don Valley Bridge. So he said it like this. He said, hey, uh, shaka there, uh, whatever. Uh, you throw yourself off of the Don Valley, okay? So we all knew what that meant, and I aired it and, you know, got a great kind of Brian Luna-like giggle out of it. <laughs> what I realized is that he just gave me the best nickname ever, Shaq. Because let's face it. Not everybody knows how to pronounce Earshad, right? Least of all, children. So my own nieces and nephews, when they were like toddlers and they could not pronounce Auntie Earshad, I taught them Auntie Shack. They are now 14, 11, and 8. To this day, I am their Auntie Shack. And I embrace this. I embrace this, not just because it's about, quote, reclaiming the insults that people throw at you. For me, that's even just the minor piece of it. It's more that I love that this man who totally disagreed with the entire premise of the show became folded into the show as a fellow queer. Mm -hmm. Namely, because he too was a misfit in an emerging pluralistic society. And his views could really be called like outlier views. And yet, because we defined queer so generously, we were able to incorporate his voice into the show. That is the kind of pluralism of which I speak. That includes people who disagree with you. And I have to say, back to the point about diversity today, that so much of the way diversity is practiced, drawing the distinction between, quote, whiteness and BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, people of color, there really is a stark contrast being drawn between the cool us, namely those who once would have been othered, Mm -hmm. and now the uncool them, namely white folks who in many respects are being othered. 
So I'm curious if we can actually use that to segue into the psychology of this. Yeah. From a psychology point of view, is this just what the brain is making us do? Do you think that we're wired to label each other? I do think that we're wired to label each other, Tanya. The primal part of the brain is the source of what is called the ego. I'm not referring to some self-helpy kind of notion here. The ego is the sort of the self-protective armor that kicks into action, particularly in a life or death situation. And thousands of years ago, when our ancestors were just hunter-gatherers, that ego was absolutely necessary minute by minute by minute because you hear a rustle in the bush, you don't know if you're about to be killed. In a life and death situation, the ego is your best friend. It tells you immediately, you either freeze, flee, or fight. Okay, that's great. The problem is, in most cases in contemporary society, we are not in a life or death situation. And the ego cannot easily distinguish between mortal danger and mere discomfort. Mm. Now, combine that with the fact that we are all immersed in technologies that are deliberately designed to amp up the primal part of our brain. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that that's all there is to why you know society is as divided as it is today, but I do think it's not just happening in the United States. It's happening in countries all over the world. And my belief is, and there is some social science research to back this up, that if we actually resisted the lure of the ego, whether it's from mindfulness or whether it is simply learning to breathe, just take a deep breath, slow the blood rush of your body, and buy yourself time to override that emotional primal part of the brain to tap into the more executive functioning part of the brain where reason and emotion can coexist, you'll find that in fact, somebody disagreeing with your point of view, be it ideological, be it religious, be it cultural, whatever it is, you'll find that you can actually engage disagreement rather than feel an existential threat as a result of being disagreed with. In your book, you use the phrasing, don't let your primal brain make you its bitch. Yeah, (laughs) pretty much, (laughs) pretty much. That's exactly right. Now, I have to say for our listeners, the vast majority of whom will not have yet read Don't Label Me, that it's kind of a play, this word bitch, because the whole book is written as a Socratic dialogue between me and my dog, Lily. Yes. Um, Yeah. And I have to explain why. I swear to you, it is not a gimmick. I grew up in the faith of Islam. I still observe Islam, but a very reform-minded version of it. But as a result of growing up in the faith, I, like many, many Muslims around the world, not all, but many, I was indoctrinated with a very unhealthy fear of dogs. We were told that dogs are spiritually dirty. So Mm -hmm. they won't just pollute you physically. You touch them and, you know, you are destined for hell. Okay. Mm -hmm. So believe it or not, you know, the critical thinking Shaq Manji actually (laughs) uh, was afraid of dogs well into my adulthood. And at a certain point, I had a big health crisis. And my partner at the time urged me to evolve and appreciate the healing power of having a dog to cuddle with. So I adopted the least threatening dog I came across (laughs) who was blind and who was old. 
And I gave her the name Lily. But here's the thing. And this is why she belongs in the book as my co-conversant. Two reasons. One, I came to appreciate exactly that my fear of dogs was irrational. Mm -hmm. Like so many of our fears of others right? We don't know who they are. We assign this label to them. The label comes with all kinds of baggage that doesn't actually apply to the individual who we're scared of. And so we wind up caving to our fears instead of engaging the other. That's number one. And Lily was my other. In engaging her, in adopting her, cuddling her, belly rubs, her belly, not mine. Uh, <laughs> I really, really fell in love with this beautiful creature. And that brings me to the second point of why she is my co-conversant. Remember just a moment ago, I mentioned that she was old and blind. Mm -hmm. Yes, factually speaking, she was that. But she was so much more. You see, she did not conform to the implications of what those labels carry. She was sassy, she was feisty, decisive, <laughs> independent-minded. She would wage a, a campaign of non-cooperation with me if I dared to put a leash around her. She refused to budge. And one afternoon, I love this story, one afternoon, I actually, to lure her affections, I spread peanut butter all over my lips. And as she came closer, she realized this was a ploy she instantly pivoted and walked away, preserving her dignity in the teeth of my pathetic scheme. Okay, so here's the point. While those labels, blind and old, did apply to her, the baggage did not. And again, that can be said of so many sentient beings. We are all complex. Do not allow labels to be the finish line of how you get to know somebody. The finish line. That's a, a really important part of this insight. I want to dig deeper into labels, but I can't help but ask Brian, if you co-wrote a book with your love of your life, Huckleberry, yes. our dog. Yes. Oh. You don't have to explain who, who what? Huckleberry is. <laughs> well, I needed to know, Brian. I needed to know. But I'm sure you would have felt it, Dr. Shaq. Uh, fair well, enough, like, fair who, enough. Who, you know. What do you think you two would write a book about? Um, infatuation. <laughs> we would, like, no, we would, it would be an advent, it would be a semi-fiction adventure story. Semi-fiction. semi, -fiction. semi -fiction. <laughs> And we'd go out on all these adventures, we'd solve crimes, and somehow in the, in the end, we'd like, I don't know if we'd ride off in the sunset or drive off in the sunset or just walk. Yeah. But, uh, but it would always, it would be like a sunset silhouette shot. Okay. Yeah. But oh, I would, beautiful. I would say, aside from the ridiculousness of what you just said, Rashad, I found myself just so moved throughout reading your book and having random bouts of laughter and crying, thinking about both the state of humanity and also our dogs. I know that that's not the point of the book by any means, but our No, dogs I wanted to make you cry, Tanya, so that was good. <laughs> <laughs> Whether it's for the right or wrong reasons, I absolutely wanted you to shed tears. So mission thank you for validating my mission. But it's just, we both Brian and I often talk, especially about our late dog, Scarlett, who yeah. when we got her was about 10 years old, all scarred up. Absolutely. She was used in dog fights. She was a pit yep. bull. And immediately when people saw her on the street, especially if they saw Brian, who with a pit bull together, yeah, just looks the two of us. a little bit more like a gang member than he looks <laughs> without a pit bull. <laughs> and together, when I was walking the dog as a white woman, when people saw that label, 
for me. They saw you as a savior. They're they like, saw oh me as my a God, savior. What you did with that dog is and so suddenly yeah. Scarlett was a rescue. When Brian was walking her, people would actually come up to him and say, Excuse me, do you fight your dog? Yeah, I had the cops mm. called on me because of that. Yeah, uh, we've had cops right. yes, twice. Right. Yeah. Well, coming back to the point that we're now all making in this conversation, which is, yeah, they labeled you, Brian. They labeled you. And that's the point I'm making, right? Yeah. Labels can be used to reduce people and dogs for that matter to something less than they actually are. Mm -hmm. And so if you're using it to discriminate, we all know that that's wrong. We all know that that needs to be fixed. But what about in the name of anti-racism when people are being labeled and being assigned value? For example, you know, you're white. You have no role to play in this conversation. You better shut up and listen. Because now it's my turn, or worse, it's our turn. Yeah. If I say something like that or even have that attitude, fact of the matter is I am labeling somebody in the name of anti-racism, but I am doing exactly what has been done to me. And I have to ask, is that really changing the game? Or is that merely switching out the jerseys on the field? Mm-hmm. A lot of what we're talking about from a psychology perspective, we often think about as the outgroup homogeneity effect. It refers to this tendency for in-group members or people we see as us, we tend to see as individuals. And anyone who we see as an outgroup member or them, they start to seem to us like they're all alike. Mm. And we tend to have much more positive attitude toward anyone in our in-group, much more skeptical or suspicious attitude toward anyone in our out-group. And so it almost seems like the question is, what serves us best in this pursuit of all having the best possible access to opportunities and growth in this world? Is it to be a series of lots of little in-groups? Or can we somehow force ourselves to broaden that and no groups sense of identity. Well, I guess that's the question. I mean, Irshad, you had this great quote in your book where you said groups are where complexity goes to die. <laughs> and so like, I'm, I'm really great. struggling with this because on the one hand, yes, I think it is so dangerous to get stuck in this in-group, out-group mentality and to protect your label and to protect your identity. But at the same time, what happens if we get rid of labels altogether? Is it just a version of saying, I don't see color or all lives matter? Right. So first of all, it is neurobiologically impossible to get rid of labels altogether. As we've already talked about, we as human beings, for evolutionary reasons, are wired to label. But back to something I alluded earlier, labels can be our starting points. They ought not to be our finish lines. Mm -hmm. And so I'm not saying that I work for a world in which everybody is some, you know, mashup that nobody has like a, a distinct identity. No, no, no. Everybody ought to be able to choose their identity for sure. The point is though, unlike a chair, unlike a table, we as, as sentient creatures, we are constantly moving, evolving, growing. And it actually works against diversity. It works against pluralism. If we impose labels on ourselves or one another and decide that is your assigned place. I'm going to fix you in time and I'm going to freeze you in place. So for example, if I say, oh, well, that person is black. Okay, factually, that may be true. But does that mean that he or she has to think like every other black person? What does that even mean? And if that person, let's say, is a conservative, 
And I expect black people out of so-called self-respect to be liberals, right? Because how can you possibly be conservative? Don't you know that all of those conservatives want to keep you down? Well, first of all, not only am I generalizing about conservatives, but now I'm also generalizing about black people, right? Because I don't see that person's individuality. I see only their category. That is the opposite of diversity. And too often, sadly, it then leads to a purity test. It then means that people within any group feel the pressure to hew to the consensus, to toe the line about what the leaders in that group expect of them. And if they dare to break free of that consensus, they risk being called self-haters or they risk being called traitors. Mm-hmm. Tanya, tell me if you would put as much emphasis on this as I do. I think of the many things that we human beings fear, judgment ranks right up there. We fear being judged, especially by our own, which is why groupthink is so easy to lapse into. I would say the reason that we fear judgment is we deeply are wired to want to belong. Yep. And it's biologically dangerous for us to feel ostracized. Yeah, I mean, we talked about tribes and epigenetics. Stuff. Like, yeah, epigenetics. Our, our genetic expression changes when we feel ostracized. And I guess that brings me to my next question, which is the labels that you were just mentioning, they go beyond just neutral labels and go into these judgment-laden labels, calling one another racist or sexist or homophobic or calling people fragile, which I know you've taken issue with, especially when we're talking about white people. Anytime you get defensive, you're called fragile, which by the way, I think there's a lot of truth to, but at the same time, if that's used as an argument to just say, you're wrong, stop talking. Yeah, that's how you're... From your perspective, what happens when people are using shaming and blaming as tactics seemingly to help people change? Well, you know, psychological research has shown that when you use tactics such as shaming, blaming, and as I put it in my book, gaming, exploiting people for their labels to serve your own agenda, uh, whether that's a racist agenda or a supposedly anti-racist agenda, it doesn't actually lead to any kind of a sincere change. Psychology shows us that what it does is it plants the seeds of resentment ultimately hostility, and ultimately humiliation. There's a study that I quote in Don't Label Me, which describes humiliation as having a more lasting impact, sinking its teeth deeper into our psyches than anger does or even happiness does. Mm -hmm. That humiliation is one of those weaponizing emotions that in turn can be gamed by a demagogue who would say, white folks, like me, we all have been exploited by the diversity crowd. Mm -hmm. No longer. Under my leadership, we are finally going to have dignity again. Mr. President? Oh my God, we've got Uh, uh, the on the line right now. uh, 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 Of course, it's just a fantasy on my part, right? Like nothing like this ever happens, right? How could it? How could it? Exactly, exactly. We're smarter than that, we human beings, right? 
But I think so much of that has been happening in our society even before Trump. I remember like 20 years ago, my fellow liberals would be referring to the breadbasket of America as flyover country. Mm. You know, when I did my book tours, my first two books, the books about Islam and reform, I distinctly remember, guys, in 2009, I was in the Midwest, in various states of the Midwest. And, you know, my audience would be asking me things like this. Why do they hate us? And guess what? They actually weren't talking about Muslims hating Americans. I was teaching at NYU at that time. They were asking, why do you people on the coast hate us? Hmm. I sniffed out at that point that there was a humiliation percolating in this part of the world. And I had no idea what that would lead to. But, you know, you Less than 10 years it? later, I could have stopped it, and I didn't, and that makes me a bystander. Now, <laughs> I insist on being an upstander by reminding my fellow liberals and progressives that the more shaming we do, thinking that this is the way to achieve a diverse society, the more backlash we are seeding. So don't be surprised, frankly, if any victory, legislatively, culturally, that we think we've racked up by showing those so-called rednecks who's in charge now, don't be surprised if that is overturned when the next tribe is in power. We'll play this episode again in four years just to see if your prediction uh, came true. <laughs> but well, it, I, I didn't put a timeline on it, did I? <laughs> like, let's get serious for just a second. When you guys are sincerely angry at one another, does it help for one or the other to insult, to rebuke, to ridicule? No, no, absolutely not. We have like a strict rule, actually. When we are arguing, we don't take shots. We don't, uh, we have certain rules. Actually, like, the meanest things we say to each other is when we're not angry with each other. Right, right. Because you know, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Because you know it comes from a place of teasing, of affection. You know the intent behind it, right? But in an actual disagreement, And anybody who's ever been in any kind of a relationship knows that the least helpful thing that you can do is to try and slam dunk the other into submission. Well, funnily enough, so often when we work towards a pluralistic society, that is the kind of tactic that we're taking. And if it doesn't work with people with whom you're in relationship, Why do you assume that it could possibly work with people with whom you're not in a relationship? In fact, it blows up in your face even more when you're not in a relationship with these other people because they have no reason to trust you. From a psychology perspective, absolutely. I guess the thing that kept coming up for me as I was reading your book is, is the problem with the people doing the shaming? Or can it also be said that the problem is with the listeners allowing themselves to get defensive? You right. Know, wrote in your book that we spend a lot of time these days teaching people how not to offend, mm-hmm. but is it just as important to learn how not to be offended? Offended. Exactly right. I emphasize that point throughout the book. It does take two to tango, for sure. Here's, though, why I think, and I know I'll take it on the chin for admitting this, why <laughs> I think there's a greater burden on the people who want to make change to go first in the listening department. What we as activists tend to downplay is that at the end of the day, we're actually in the sales business, Mm. okay? We're actually selling a message that we want other people to take up. Otherwise, you're not growing your audience. You're not growing your market. You're just selling 
to people who are already, you know, your patrons, right? Mm -hmm. No, you need to grow the business in order to have your product, in this case, anti-racism, go mainstream. So if you have something to sell and there's a whole audience out there that views you with suspicion because they are expecting you to slam them, what are you going to do? Well, I guess you have to build trust, right? You have to make it a conversation instead of like a pitch. Well, and that you like me if you're selling to me. I should feel like you're selling to me. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Like you're not talking down to me. That's what I mean about like we're sitting across the table. I'm not looking at you on a stage. And uh, and I think that's the most effective. Any kind of conversation has to, it's open-ended on both sides. And I guess what you're bringing up is the power of the conversation as a tool for social change. And I think this ties into your work, Irshad, and the concept of developing moral courage. I've heard you talk about it in many ways. I don't know if you were quoting someone or if this is a Dr. Shack original, but to speak as if you're right, to listen as if you're wrong. Mm, definitely not a Shack original, though I am happy <laughs> to propagate that meme. Um, That's exactly right. You know, listen as if you are wrong because chances are you actually only have the partial truth. Nobody has a monopoly on the truth. But more importantly, I'm going to put aside the moral reason to listen. Let's actually focus on results. When you listen to somebody you profoundly disagree with, you wind up getting information from them about what they value. And when you've got that information about where they're coming from, why they believe what they believe, you're able then to reframe your own argument in a way that finally has a shot of being heard by them. One of the stories that I tell in Don't Label Me is between a conversation, I should say, between a Confederate flag supporter and an opponent of the Confederate flag. They're both young people. The opponent of the Confederate flag, African-American, hip-hop artist, the supporter of the Confederate flag, white guy. They sit down and she, the opponent of the Confederate flag, starts the conversation with a very simple question. How does that Confederate flag make you feel? She Mm. says to the supporter. And he responds, it makes me feel like I'm at home. But because she asked him that question, he now feels morally obliged to ask her, how does it make you feel? Mm -hmm. And over the course of an afternoon of conversation, he, the supporter of the Confederate flag, comes to realize something he would have never known otherwise, that he actually cares about her more than he cares about the flag. Months later, with nobody pushing him into this, He brings his own friends to the table for a larger conversation about this. And months after that, he takes down the Confederate flag that is flying in his backyard, neatly folds it up, puts it in a box that he labels things of the past. Hmm. And it's because of that conversation. Now, am I saying that every conversation will go this swimmingly? Not at all. What I am saying is... If you prematurely walk away, if you decide that because of this guy's position on the flag or the way that woman looks or even the way they vote, I have nothing to say to them and they have nothing to say to me, you may be leaving change on the table. So, Dr. Shack, I think what you're saying is incredibly important and incredibly valuable. I, I can't stress it enough, but 
say the Italian gentleman who wished these horrible things on you. I mean, like, how do you get those people to the table? Earlier, you said, you know, that labels aren't really life or death. You know, I grew up, and this is something that you're going to relate to based on being queer and Muslim. People labeled you, people labeled me, and we had to quickly identify who was a threat and who wasn't. That could mean violence. And it wasn't like a shouting match or anything. It was like, it you know, a, no, it was like a punch in the back of the head or, you know, and right. all of a sudden right. you're on the receiving end of like maybe a five person beatdown. I still carry that over right now into like this weird thing I have, especially in this time with, with so much racism and so out there on the front door now. Sure. So I ask, how do you get those people that are that emotional to leave you such a terrible message for your show? How do you get those people to that table to ask those questions? Sometimes you can't, Brian. Yeah. Sometimes you can't. And if you are being threatened with physical violence, I'm the first person to say, get the hell out of there, because that is life or death. And I want to clarify, by the way, I did not say that labels are not life or death. What I said was, in most cases in contemporary life, we don't find ourselves in life or death situations. Right, right, right. Right? right? But yes, when you do believe that I am physically endangered by sticking around, get the hell out of there. Absolutely. Sometimes you do have to walk away, but do not assume that because of the way someone looks, because of the position that they take on a certain issue, that that must mean that you are physically endangered. Don't be premature if you can. You got to gauge the situation. But I will tell you that you mentioned being queer and Muslim, and I mentioned having a couple of books prior to Don't Label Me, and those books were about reform, the need for reform within my faith of Islam. You won't be surprised to hear that I have been face-to-face with people who have wanted me dead on the spot and have said so. And I've said so. I remember one evening in Amsterdam, a whole whack of um, of wackadoos, really. A whole whack of wackadoos. That, that's buttons. you know, that's the academic in me speaking. Um, <laughs> literally barged into the community center where I was presenting my case and screamed in Arabic, "Execute her! Execute her!" And to their credit, the supporters who were in the audience, there were, there were also detractors, but supporters who were in the audience instantly got up and created a ring of protection around me as if to say, you'll have to get through us to get to her, right? But here's the thing I want to tell you. I remember seeing these young men, really boys, you know, in their late teens. And I said to them, Allah loves you. And so do I. Hmm. Take a seat. Let's talk. About half of them did exactly that. Nobody had ever said this to them before. Now you're making me cry again. No, no, but but no, but Tanya, they were they were literally disoriented because nothing more was expected of them. They figured this was the only way to be heard. So when I said, let's talk. About half of them did exactly that. The other half still wanted me dead. But what about that half that people just kind of wrote off as if they're just violence embodied? See, we've got to give each other more credit than that. I think what you're getting into in describing this is kind of the spectrum of courage from physical courage to Mm -hmm. what you're teaching us, which is moral courage. Mm -hmm. 
To get into this conversation of courage, I always love for my own amusement and because he tends to be really good at this to get Brian to define things. Oh, could you define <laughs> courage for us? Yeah, yeah. Uh, he's yeah. like a Texan. Oh, we well, should yeah. be able to do this. I just I remember reading it ages ago, and this is <laughs> it may even be from an old football video. Being afraid but going anyway. So, in psychology, there are at least three categories of courage, and I'll just really quickly describe them so that we can look at moral courage by contrast. Mm -hmm. So, courage typically is seen as, well, it could be an umbrella term, but often it's used as kind of physical courage. Like I think about Brian, who is very, very scared of spiders, lately has been (laughs) using our, it's called a bugzooka, and it's like a capture and safe release for bugs or spiders. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you've been overcoming your fears for spiders of a certain size. <laughs> I haven't right? been using my shoe. <laughs> you haven't been using your shoe. <laughs> so that would be physical courage. There's also psychological courage, which I also commend you of. Psychological courage is the willingness to confront our own psychological problems, despite the creepy chasm that is mm-hmm. our minds. And then moral courage I'll tell you what what I think it is, Irshad, but please tell me because you are the expert in this, the willingness to do what you believe is right, regardless of the consequences. How do you define it? Can I tell you, because I think this is very revealing, how I have come to define it. So I started off, you know, teaching moral courage at New York University. And at the time, this was um, a little over 10 years ago. At the time, I defined it as follows. Moral courage is speaking truth to power within your own community for a greater good. Okay, big problem. In fact, two big problems with that definition. The first is speaking truth to power. Okay, whose truth? Mm. My truth? Well, yeah, of course, because I'm, you know, I'm the agent here, right? Like I'm the one who's doing the speaking. But too often, because of the power of the ego, Too often, that makes us believe that my truth, the speaker's truth, is the only truth worth hearing, because it's the only truth that is true. And I I saw that in my own students. I had a number of students who were wanting to bring moral courage into their activism, particularly, actually, their anti-racist activism. And so often, they, again, fell into the trap of believing that how they viewed a situation was the only way to view it, and everybody else was either dishonest or ignorant. Okay? Mm-hmm. And then the second problem with my definition, speak truth to power within your community for a greater good, speak truth to power. Power, that's a big word, as we all know. And my definition suggested that power is always and only external, Mm -hmm. that I don't have any power. It's always outside of me, which is why I have to speak truth to it. I have to speak truth to Washington, D.C. I have to speak truth to the professor. I have to speak truth to the religious authority. In other words, I'm never the one with any power. It's always somebody else. And that is a dangerous notion. Because if we don't recognize that the ego is something that we can tame, not fully control, but something that we can tame, then we don't recognize that the ego is a form of power that makes us behave in certain ways. And so if we don't recognize that as our own power, then we will be using that power very poorly, often even abusing that power, which brings me back to this whole idea 
back to the issue of diversity, is that if as a person of color, I am having a conversation or what I call a conversation with somebody about racism, I've got to appreciate that, especially if that other person is white, in this context, I have the power to approve or disapprove of that person. If that person wants to be my ally and asking certain questions, and I say to them, you know what, it's not my job to educate you. Or if I say to them, listen, you've just got to be quiet and just hear my story. Then what I've actually done is in many ways stripped that person of their motivation to feel like they can be a partner with me in this journey to justice. Because I have just disapproved of their desire to be part of this journey. So in that particular context, I would say I have used my power very poorly because I have caved to the impatient, impulsive ego that all of us have. And that includes people who think that they are actually powerless. So I'm curious if your perception of power as fluid and distributed and sometimes in an institution, maybe sometimes in a person or an individual, and it shifts depending on context and situation, how has your definition of moral courage evolved? Mm, Your definition of speaking and truth and power, you need a new definition, it sounds like. Oh, yeah. And over the years, I developed something that I think is simple without being simplistic. For me, moral courage means doing the right thing in the face of your fears. Now, I get completely, we'll we'll put aside the the piece about fears, because, you know, we can understand that pretty easily. It's a fear of negative consequences, right? And it's something that Brian raised in his own definition of courage, like, you know, you're afraid, but you'll do it anyway. Mm -hmm. The nuanced part of this definition, do the right thing in the face of your fear, is what is the right thing? Mm-hmm. especially in a polarized culture as ours is, somebody's right is somebody else's abominable. Mm-hmm. The way I've resolved this for myself is that before deciding full stop what is right, expose yourself to other points of view about what you think is right. And in doing so, at least a couple of things will happen. One, in hearing disagreement with what you think is right, you'll be able to clarify for yourself why you believe what you believe. And given those disagreements, given those alternate points of view, given these counter arguments, not just why you believe what you believe, but whether you should believe it at all. Mm -hmm. And if upon hearing these counter arguments on balance, you think that you are still on the right side of things, then you have done a degree of due diligence in the sense that you have challenged this notion that just because I believe it, it must be true. So you've actually put yourself in the hot seat, which is number one, if you're going to tame your ego. But the other thing that you've done as part of figuring out, is this the right thing to do is you have started a dialogue about it. And here's, I think, the rock solid fact of any social change. Every major positive change in history that sticks, this is important, every major enduring positive change starts with some dialogue. Why? Because if the people who are on the other side of this issue, if the people who don't yet see the issue the way you do, if your holdouts feel unheard, then your change 
is not going to endure because you will have blowback. And to a certain degree, you will have ensured that you get blowback because you have not given the other side or the other sides up the dignity of voicing where they're coming from as well. So regardless of what you are activating for or agitating for, no matter how right I believe it is or you believe it is, there's got to be a certain amount of dialogue in order to have other people feel that their voices have at least been given space to be expressed. That way, emotional defenses can come down just enough for them to buy into the change that needs to be happening. It's interesting. It's like the fear that you're focusing on us overcoming is the fear of changing our minds. It's the fear of the discomfort of a conversation. That's it. It, these fears that don't put us in physical harm. That's I guess exactly my, right. My last question for you, I came across this quote by Marcel Franz, who does not have a Wikipedia page unlike you. So I'm not actually sure who this person is, but this quote is everywhere on the internet. And it's the secret of life is this, when you hear the sound of cannons, walk toward them, mm. which to me sounds really inspiring and also really stupid. And it, it, it comes off as reckless, doesn't it? Right. And except, so, yeah. except that cannons volley. So the closer you are to the cannons, the oh. less likely you are to get hit. Oh, I totally misunderstood this quote. Ooh, this is, this is Ryan, not even I had heard. no idea you were that profound. <laughs> <laughs> See, this is the problem with labeling somebody a football, you know, player, right? <laughs> is that it comes with baggage that does not allow you to hear this wisdom that just came from one Dr. Brian Luna. <laughs> <laughs> he's trying. He's, he's working on it. <laughs> but, oh, I see. So that totally shifts my perspective about that quote. So Not the idea is... You're talking about courage, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's the same thing. It's the same idea. The idea being that you It's less dangerous if you move closer. It's less dangerous if you follow your courage because the fear is what is where all the danger comes from. Uh, mm. You know, tiptoeing whether or not you go or don't. That's where you're going to get hurt because you're going to be scared and hurt. It hurts less if you're moving forward. I mean, that's another football thing. You know, it's like, it hurts. <laughs> if you're standing still and you get hit, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It, you're going to take all the impact. But if you're going forward, if you're moving towards, and look, anybody who tells you that they're not afraid before a fight or before a game, they're lying. But if you move forward during that, it's going to hurt a lot less if you're going forward, believing in what you believe in. That's interesting. So I guess that answers to some extent my question. I mean, my question was going to be why? why? Why bother moving toward the cannons? Why bother choosing to have these difficult conversations? Why bother choosing to look inward? And it sounds like from your perspective, it's actually terrifying in the short term, but so much less painful in the long term. Dr. Shack, what's your stance on this? Why have you dedicated uh, your whole life? Why are you trying to get all of us to move towards the, <laughs> the psychological canon? Well, you know, in this case, I, I have to agree with my esteemed colleague, uh, Dr. Brian Luna. <laughs> I have learned the hard way, actually, that integrity is the greatest protection. If what you're looking for is to be protected from the slings and the arrows, you're never going to have a more durable shield than the wholeness that comes from facing your fears. And that doesn't always mean, by the way, standing directly in harm's way. It can mean, for example, supporting a friend who says that I think I'm going to move towards the cannon. 
asking them, why are you impelled to do this? What's driving you? What's motivating you? And when they can explain that to you and therefore to themselves, it doesn't mean that you go along with them if you honestly don't feel that that's the right move for you. But it does mean appreciating they are walking towards their integrity and that in supporting them to do that, they may be motivating you to see your integrity for a later situation in a whole new way. So there's plenty of roles that all of us can play. This is not a zero-sum game. You know, it's not either or. Either I walk towards the cannon or I run away. Not at all. You know, you can dance around it. You can give the thumbs up to somebody who knows why they are walking towards it. That is part of what it means to be in community without abandoning your individuality. I love that. Thank you. So before we wrap up, Irshad, if listeners want to learn more about you and your work and they want to develop more of their own moral (laughs) courage and discover what it means for themselves to be a plural, what should they do? (laughs) Well, you can come to irshadmanji.com, my website, or even better, you can go to moralcourage.com and hit the learn tab in the top nav. And that'll give you some pretty fun information about how you can be involved, not just develop your own moral courage, but also become, drum roll please, for the third and last time, a moral courage mentor. In order to teach others how they can resolve dilemmas, disagreements, and conflicts in their own communities by applying the skills of moral courage. I love it. Last but not least, needless to say, you can also read Don't Label Me. And by the way, I expressly say in the introduction of the book, in order to role model what I'm talking about, that if you disagree with any positions I take in the book on the hot button issues of our day, then you actually have the chance to change my mind. By writing to me, that sounds like a dare. How, right? Yes, by writing to me. But here's but here's the clincher: the way you communicate your disagreement will matter to how I receive it. So if oh, nice. I can feel, <laughs> if I can feel your grace as you tell me I'm full of shit, you've got a far far higher chance of me not just changing my mind, but thereby changing the footnote to my claim, which is on my website. The footnotes are on my website and I will credit you personally with having changed my mind. Brian has a a glimmer. No, 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 no. I'm not. No, no, no. I'm not trying to take the bet. I'm like, that's amazing. (laughs) That's badass. Way to walk the talk. I got to tell you, Dr. Sheck, I don't know if you, if you know this, but I'm, I'm sitting in a room of comic books and I love comic book stories and they've taught me so much about my own moral courage and Mm -hmm. like what it means to stand up for what I believe is right. Even if it's not popular. And then you meet someone like you, and I'm not blowing smoke up your chimney by any means, meet someone like you who's an actual hero with a way you're bringing about change. And it really does give me shivers to know that you're out there and that you're inspiring even me today and others that hopefully will listen and read your book. I'm really honored to talk to you and I can't tell you enough how this is going to stay with me for a very long time. So thank you. Well, Brian, I must tell you that upon hearing all of this, Lily, my dog, is laughing her ass off. (laughs) Now, you know, she she died, huh? Uh, Like, I I don't want to give too much away here, but she died. But she and I still talk to one another. 
and she still thinks that uh, I'm too big for my britches. So um, she's going to put you in your place, Luna. Let me tell you something. She's going to put you in your place. And, I can't wait. And, and as she should, because that's the kind of vibrancy, right, of conversation and interaction and engagement that makes for a truly pluralistic society. So all I ask is that you be my bodyguard when she comes after me. Too. You, I will be right there, right there, running away right next to you. So <laughs> You're running away right next to me. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you both so much. This Thank was a ton you. of fun. So I know we talked a big game about not labeling, but there is one label that we can all agree <laughs> is terrific, which is labeling this podcast yes. with five stars. It helps our listeners find us so we can all learn and grow and become more courageous together. Also, it makes Brian really, really happy. When I'm get a five -star so review. happy. <laughs> I read them all and I read them out loud and I even, I act them out. So thank you for hanging out with us today. And thank you for listening to Talk Sight to Me. Talk Sight to Me.